0: Chapter 2. The next day, Christian was awoken by his mother. She had shopping to do at the market for lunch, and his father was already out and about on patrol. Thomas had decided that he could accomplish more in town if he actually went there as much as his wife wanted him to stay guard at the house. She was worried that whoever had killed Erica's parents would come back to kill Erica, But Thomas had convinced his wife that since they did not try to come back and finish it before she was able to tell someone about it, odds were they would not be back. Or, if they were to try and finish the job, it would be much later, when the watch was not on edge and their guard was down. She had conceded, if a bit reluctant. Along with his daily chores of laundry, cleaning the oven, and dusting the house, his mother stressed he was to keep Erica as cheerful as possible, and above all else, Leave the bodies alone, his mother enunciated each word, as if the phrasing would make her point more clear. Christian rubbed the grime out of his eyes as he nodded to his mother, swearing he would not bring any of his findings anywhere near Erica. Christian had learned early on that that it sometimes paid to be overly clear, so as to not cause trouble later. His mother did not follow up his answer with anything else, so he counted himself lucky. He reached over to his desk to pick up some papers, feigning interest until his mom left the room and he could get himself dressed. The day felt like it would be a warm one, so he pulled on a pair of shorts and found a shirt in the chest at the foot of his bed. First things first, the self-appointed chore he cherished the most. When he was younger, hanging out at the watch house, he would play with a wooden sword and shield his dad had made for him, staging mock combats with the men there but one day his dad had taken him out to the practice yard to where they kept the combat dummies. He enjoyed smacking them around a bit with his sword, but real combat, even sparring, always made Christian a little edgy. It was not that he was afraid to get hit. Boys of the Watch did not grow up scared of combat. But he always overthought his strategies and had a hard time focusing when danger was present and thrashing in his direction. So he had tried his hand at swords, maces, and axes, none of which he took a real liking to. He had enjoyed swinging a polearm around, as the idea of of reach appealed to him, but swinging it was awkward, especially at his height, and made fighting in any kind of close quarters a real hassle. He had seen a few watchmen firing arrows at targets, and had given that a try, but again his size was a bit of an issue. Then one of the men handed him a crossbow, and it had been love at first sight. It was something he could work himself, allow him to fight from a distance, and it did not matter if the target he was shooting at was an armor or not. The strength and distance of the shot was always the same, reliable. The bolts for it were smaller than an arrow as well, which meant he could carry more of them and they took up less space. Firing one for the first time, he had been taken aback by the kick he felt when the bolt left the chamber. After some practicing and moving to a smaller model, he quickly took to the art. A few years later his dad had given him a hand crossbow that he had made that he had made special from a watch's weaponsmith. Thomas had caught a cadre of thieves that had been biting deep into the smith's wares and owed him a favor. It was powerful enough to pierce armor like a normal crossbow, but was also small enough to aim and fire with just one hand. The string pulled back using a small winch, and he could crank while moving. But the best part was the loading chamber. Most crossbows had to be reloaded after every shot, pulling the string back, securing the hammer, then placing a bolt onto the guide. His crossbow had a chamber that could be loaded up with five extra bolts, not counting the one already loaded. All he had to do was crank the winch and the next bolt would be pushed up into firing position. He had been amazed by the punch the little thing could pack and his dad had said that a majeure had ruined the wood it was made from with some sort of celerity. It caused the effort it took to reload the implement to be reduced, allowing Christian to fire it faster than any other crossbow. Turning the crossbow over revealed a faint hint of burned etchings along the shaft. The runes had felt smooth to the touch, and added just the right hint of mystery to the already amazing gift. He cleaned it once, sometimes twice a day, regarding it with the kind of reverence one reserves for holy items and artifacts. He would oil the metal parts and wax the wooden chambers and the flexible parts. Even if he did not use it every day, his dad had taught him that maintaining one's weapon was the most important duty of a soldier. You respected them, or they would fail you when you needed them most. So it had become the first thing he did every morning. Before he ate or used the bathroom, he would clean and care for his crossbow. Over the years of owning it, he had even learned how to craft the bolts necessary to fire it as well. He had quite a few of them now, including some experimental bolts that he had yet to try, but kept close at hand. He had asked his father if he should name it. He had heard of swords and bows of legend, but could not recall a named crossbow. His father said if he felt it should be named, then to do so. Names like freedom or justice came to him first, but he thought them too plain and it did not really represent its use. He knew people named boats and ships after women, but he did not think a device such as this should be feminine. In the end, he settled on blackened sky. It felt reasonably ominous to him with just the right blend of flavor and curiosity. His mom had said it would take more than a few shots from it to blacken the skies, but Christian's mind had been made up. After minutes of painstaking attention, Christian returned Black and sky to its case and went to see to the rest of the chores. The light was still dawning, and he knew it would be cold down by the river, so laundry was out till later. He crept down the steps, popping his head into his parents' room to see Erica stir, curled up in blankets. He paused to wake her, but thought better of it and went into the kitchen to clean. He scraped the suit and ash out of the oven. He lifted the lid of the stew pot, sitting amongst the coals. It was still a little warm. He took a whiff, then walked over to a cabinet and took a few cloves of garlic and onion, chopped them up, and tossed them into the mix. He then grabbed some logs from beside the oven, added a few coals, and struck a low fire to let the pot simmer for the day. Next he swept the floors and counters, checking the grain cellar for rats. He checked the meat locker to see if any maggots or flies were forming. One cut looked to be a bit ripe. He thought of adding it to the stew, it might cook up well enough. It would be a shame to waste it. In the end, he compromised by slicing it up, sticking it on a skewer, and putting it over the fire. The heat would get rid of any rot. Next, he made his way through the living room, cleaning up dust and dirt that had come in under the doors and windows. Being careful not to wake the snoozing Erica, he folded up the spare blankets his parents had used to sleep on for the night before he put them away in their room. Next he went into the kitchen, pouring himself a glass of milk and tearing off a hunk of vegetable bread from the loaf his mom had baked the day before. His mom complained that Christian and his father did not eat healthy enough, and that if they were not going to watch what they ate, she would make the choice she would take the choice out of their hands. Christian had been skeptical the first time he had seen bread with corn, tomatoes, and beans baked into it. It turned out to be quite amazing alongside beef stew, which was a staple in the household. He took another piece and roasted it over the fire for a few minutes, whilst preparing a tray with milk, cheese, and half an apple. Adding the bread, he took the tray into his parents' room and set it down on the nightstand next to the bed, so Erica would have something to eat when she woke up. He wanted to wait a bit longer before he went to do laundry. It was his least favorite chore. He dragged his dirty clothes bag into the living room, then went to his parents' room and picked up their basket of clothes, careful not to make too much noise. Then he set it down and tossed his stuff on top, then transferred all of it into a little wheeled basket he had rigged up to help with moving all the laundry. Finally, he sat himself down at the table and worked on his letters. He wrote through the alphabet a few times, until he felt he had made each letter as clear as possible. His grammar was fine, but as far as it being legible, it was up for debate. If he wanted to be a good detective, people would need to be able to read his reports and notes, so he tried to improve his penmanship whenever possible. This killed at least two hours, he judged. He began to feel the warm air filling the house. Erica was stirring in the other room. Blinking a few times, she wondered why her bed felt so different, panicking for a moment when she did not recognize her surroundings. Then it all started to come back to her. She was at Christian's house. She'd been there for a few days, she thought. She blinked some tears away, remembering why she was here. She wiped her eyes clean and stretched out in the bed. Wiggling a little, arching her back and tensing her whole body, then relaxed and just laid there, staring up at the ceiling. Her stomach rumbled, politely making its presence known to Erica. She sighed, breathing in, holding her breath until she felt a cough coming on, and then then let it all out with a sputter. The smell of bread caught her nose, making her all the more hungry. She rolled to her side, spying the food tray set on the nightstand. She reached over and picked the bread up, giving it a cursory sniff before nibbling a little bit. She picked the vegetables out and ate those, leaving the bread casing littering the tray. She sat up and took a sip of the milk, then pushed the tray away. She was still in the same nightshirt she had gone to bed in the night before. Thinking about that made her sniffle. She could feel the tears welling up again, but this time she shook her head and pushed them back. She was tired of crying. She kicked her feet a few times, shaking her head, just to get the blood flowing a little, taking her mind off things. She wandered out into the living room to spot Christian at the table. He looked up as she entered the room, smiling. She walked over, pulling a chair up next to his, then sat down and watched him. What you doing? she asked, looking at the letters, pondering their meaning. Working on my lettering, he said. What for? Well, because my writing is bad, and if I'm able to join the watch one day like my dad, I need to be a better writer. Mom always said that writing wasn't important for a lady. Well, my mom is a lady, and she knows how to write. Really? Erica looked up now, eyes on Christian. Yeah, she did not always know how, but my dad taught her since he was going to teach me. Figured he'd teach us both. How does knowing how to write help in the watch? She asked. Well, sometimes you have these cases where you have to read records or notes or contracts. Plus, all of the laws are written, and you have to know what the laws are if you're going to be a good watchman. Christian wrote as he talked, turning the paper to show her his work. Do you want to try? Erica was about to say that her mom told her that she would not need to know it herself, but Christian had already slid her a piece of paper and a Quill, his question more rhetorical in nature. First, he showed her how to hold it, and the proper way to dip the quill as to not get too much ink. She was reluctant at first, but Christian was nothing if not persistent. He said she should at least know how to write her name if she ever needed to sign for anything. He would write it, then she would have it, then he would have her do it next. The exercise must have taken longer than he thought, because shortly before he felt she could write it with as much accuracy as she could muster his mom came in with some groceries from the market. He wrote down a few simple words that he deemed basic and important enough that they would be handy to be able to read and write. Then his mom said he had put off laundry long enough and that he should get back to work if he knew it was good for him. He nodded and prepared to leave, but not before setting Erica up with some stuff to do while he was gone. When Christian left to do the laundry, Erica asked Mrs. Telpin several questions regarding the practicality of learning letters. Anne laughed, saying that education in any form was a good thing. Erica's responses involved something her mother told her. Anne Telpins had never been fond of Arlene, Erica's mother. She had not been a bad woman. She had been a singer of some renown in the local area, and was very beautiful. She would travel to different bars and street theaters to make a living but then she became pregnant after a fling with one of the many interesting men she met in her line of work. That was how she remembered them. Anyway, her travels had become more limited, until eventually she could not even perform locally, the size of her pregnancy inhibiting her. She had always lived pretty carefree, but none of her interesting men wanted to take her in, and she had told Anne that she never saw the father of the child since the night it had been conceived. But there was one fan that had always come to all of her shows and called it, a cobbler named James DeBay. He had pined after Arlene for a number of years, but she had always told him that the road was her home. In truth, she always thought of him as too boring for her, but she needed the help and a home. James was more than happy to provide both. When the time came, Arlene gave birth to a beautiful little girl. They named her Erica after James's mother. Arlene had said spelling it A E R I K A made it less common thus far more interesting. A few years after Erica was born Arlene tried to return to the stage but too much had changed. The tales and songs she knew were no longer popular and her body was not the curvy hourglass it used to be. James did not want her leaving the city and touring the countryside either now that they had a child to raise. She tried a few more common professions, but nothing suited her. Arlene did not want to work for a living. James had done well enough on his own, and assured Arlene she did not need to work if she did not want to. So she did not. Instead, she focused on raising and grooming her daughter so that she might marry a prince or rich merchant one day. She had filled Erica's head with stories. When Erica was old enough to be talkative, her mother had tried to teach her how to be prim and proper though her lessons were based on the stories and plays her mother had been in, and not any real knowledge. She taught her daughter how to be a demure woman so that she might one day find a man to take care of her. Years later, Arlene became pregnant again, this time with James's child. He had picked the name Annika, spelling it A-N-N-I-K-A, thinking Arlene would find it interesting enough, and she did. The end result of all of this Miss Telpins had learned over the past two days, was a girl who had absolutely no practical skills. She did not know how to cook, do laundry, clean, or even set a table. Her mother had told her these things would be handled by servants when the time came, and she should not trouble herself. Anne now found herself regretting snapping at Christian to do the laundry, seeing that he had taken it upon himself to teach Erica something of value. Next time, she told herself, she would have Christian show Erica the morning chores so that she could learn something else useful. She had talked it over with Thomas, and they had both reached the decision that Erica should stay with them. Arlene had been an orphan, and James's parents were both dead, having been murdered by brigands a few years ago. James had no siblings. Turning Erica over to the city orphanage never crossed their minds. Thomas had arrested enough delinquents to know that he did not want Erica thrown in with the same group of people, not if he could help her in other ways. Anyway, she and Christian had been friends since forever, and Anne always wanted another child. A few years back, Thomas had built on an extra room that he used as an office, but he had always wanted to have it at the watch, building it only to make Anne happy that he could spend more time at home. It would make an excellent bedroom for Erica. "'We'll have to go and buy you some new clothes and dresses,' Anne said, looking at Erica, sitting there in her nightshirt. "'Does that sound like fun?' Erica shrugged, but looked at Anne and nodded. Her Christian-appointed assignment stopped in favor of doodling some picture of flowers on the paper. "'Can we dye my hair?' she asked, looking up from her doodles. "'Dye your hair?' Anne asked, perplexed, to which Erica smiled and grabbed her braids, holding them up for display." Oh, yes, right. I suppose if that's what you want, Anne agreed, not knowing what else to say. Erica nodded again and slid out of her chair to get up. Well, let's be off then, shall we? Trish Trish over on Bolton Street owes me a few favors, and she always gives me a good deal on fabrics, Anne continued, taking some money from the bedroom. Annika went into the bedroom, returning a few minutes later, taking Anne's hand in hers as she was led outside. Anne shut the door behind. The trek to the river was not too bad. The only other people out on the streets seemed to be hawkers and washers. Christian had fastened two wagon wheels to the side of a wash bucket after a few trips, and it had made the journey easier. He could build up enough speed and then hop on the lip of the bucket, balancing as the laundry basket took off down the street like a horseless carriage. He was drifting down the street when two men carrying a coffin came out of a doorway ahead of him. Oh, heck, Christian thought as he tilted back too far, throwing himself off balance. He grabbed the top of the basket as his behind bumped and skidded across the cobblestones. Laundry spilled out around him as he rolled right under the coffin between the two men. They lifted the coffin a little, both spooked by the basket taking off underneath of them. "'Coming through!' Christian stammered as he continued past them, the basket eventually turning, going into a roll. Feeling the battle lost, Christian let go of his hold on the basket as he watched it bounce, the wheels coming loose. "'For stupidity I give you a nine, but delivery? Eh, a six. "'Pardon, what?' Christian said turning his attention to a man dressed in a purple doublet with black leather pants, dirty white socks, and jester shoes, complete with bells. One hand was resting on one on what looked like a miniature lute, the other hand holding some sort of stick with a thin band on it. Your performance, eh, generally lacking, missing the flair of a true performer like myself, the man continued, flipping the stick over in his hand once before picking it up, lifting his lute, bringing the stick across, and proceeding to draw it back and forth, making a whining sound from the instrument. He varied the tempo a bit, starting slow, then picking up to a blazing staccato, then letting it slow to a whimper. It sounded like so much noise to Christian. You are right. I am no performer when it comes to that, Christian said, picking himself up off the road, dusting his knees off. "'I'll tell you where you can put,' the musician started, but a large hand swatted him in the stomach, causing him to cough, the lute slipping from his grasp. Another large hand shot out and caught the lute, returning it to the musician's grasp. Christian had not noticed the man before, but now that he could see him, he could not imagine how he had ever missed him in the first place. Almost spilling out of the shadows next to the musician, a short, stout, dark-skinned southerner appeared. His hair was wound tightly to his skull, braided in rows that cascaded down the back of his scalp. His width was enormous. His physique could best be described as rotund. He wore a dark gray jacket and matching shorts, a pair of loose-fitting sandals clinging to his massive feet. He gave the musician a scolding look before turning his face to Christian at which point the look changed from frown to a wide smile, grinning from ear to ear. He extended a meaty paw to the boy. Christian took a cautious step forward, reaching out gingerly to the man. The man shifted forward like an avalanche, his hand engulfing Christian's own in a massive handshake. Christian felt as if he had just stuck his hand into some creature's mouth, so completely did it disappear. The behemoth took his other hand and placed it on the top of his own, giving the boy a great two-handed shake that almost threw him off balance. The grin widened, and his eyes beamed like lanterns. "'This is my partner in crime, Umbrunsway," the musician motioned. "'And you can call me Haviland, previously Haviland the Magnificent, but now under new magistrate, as Haviland the Charitable.' "'He is a musician?' Christian asked Havlin, eyeing the mountain of a man in front of him. Think of him as my agent and moral barometer. Profits have never seemed so high. You mean Ben, correct? No, alas, in a cruel twist of fate, the gods have seemed to curse my luck. And Brunswick let his grasp of Christian's hand go, allowing him to give Havlin an elbow to the ribs and a look of skepticism. "'Hm, right. "'What I meant to say is that I have taken a vow of poverty "'in honor of the one God. "'And though huge my entertaining talents may be, "'the speed at which I reward that wealth to the poor and needy "'is equally huge.' "'At this, and Brunsway smiled, "'leaning over to wrap, um, to wrap Havlin up in a hug. "'Unhand me, Lummox!' "'Havlin cried as he attempted to fend off the monk, "'who eventually stopped, feigning hurt screwing his face up in a pout. "'What is your story?' Christian asked, turning to Umbrunsway. "'Umbrunsway is a follower of the One God and has taken a vow of silence to honor his beliefs.' "'So you've never heard him talk?' Christian asked. "'Well, you can't be silent all the time,' Haviland began, stepping up from the sidewalk into the street beside Christian. "'Even the mighty occasionally falter, am I right, my corpulent companion?' Umbrunzoy crossed his arms over his chest, regarding Haviland as one might an unwelcome nuisance. Havlin leaned over and spoke softly into Christian's ear. "'Between you and me, he doesn't have much wisdom to bestow for calling himself a monk. I think he just took that vow so he wouldn't have to exercise his limited vocation.' Havlin did not get a chance to finish his statement— as Umbrunsway came off the sidewalk, his arms raised. Haviland stepped back and made to the other side of Christian, to which Brunsway gave chase. They made almost two laps around Christian before the boy got tired of it all and sighed, picking up the scattered articles of clothing that still littered the street. At least it was on the way to the wash and not on the way back, he thought to himself as he began throwing clothes into the damaged basket. It might yet ride again on wheels, but not today. Meanwhile, Umbrunsway had managed to get a hand on Havlin, which ended with Havlin on his stomach on the ground. Umbronsway sitting astride him, arms crossed in satisfaction, while Havlin elicited half hearted pleas to Christian until they both realized they no longer had an audience. Are you not amused? Havlin asked Christian. He motioned for Umbrunsway to let him up which the large man shifted and stood, pulling Havlin up with a flick of the wrist. "'Oh, um, yes, great stuff,' Christian replied, his eyes focused on locating a few odd shirts that had been blown a bit by the wind. "'Do you have a name, boy?' "'Yes.' "'Yes?' "'What is your name, boy?' Havlin said, looking annoyed." Oh, you want to know it? It is Christian. Christian regarded Havlin for a moment before smiling. What, are you not amused? Havlin looked at the boy for a moment before grinning, but shaking his head. Did I mention your delivery was horrible? You gave it a six. Lies, all lies. It's a two. Whatever. Christian grinned despite himself. It has been... Interesting, but I have clothes that I need to wash. Yes, yes, by all means, don't want to keep the little misses waiting. They're not for my wife. Oh, my mistake, these are modern times after all. Your husband, then. No, that's, that's not what I meant either. Hey, who am I to judge? No, I mean, look at me, I'm 15, Christian said. They grow up so fast, don't they? Haviland said in a whimsical voice, looking to Embrunsway, who offered a curt nod. Christian began to utter a reply, but then thought better of it and just shook his head. Enjoy the rest of your day, gentlemen. May you earn much for the poor and the city are most deserving. With that, Christian walked down the street, grabbing the last few pieces of clothing that had escaped him. He was not a dozen feet down the street when he heard Haviland's voice addressing some new victim. Christian wiped the sleeve of his shirt across his forehead as he knelt down by the water's edge. A few other people were out as well. Colment had a river, the Undine, running along its westernmost wall, which wound its way a few miles through the Baltic Mountains before emptying out into the serrated sea. Someone had decided years ago to build a small house that sat over a portion of the river, diverting some of the stream through a series of stone canals. It was deserted now and served as an excellent place to wash laundry. Christian's only wish was that his parents' house was not at the opposite end of the city. It took nearly an hour to make a trip to and from the wash house. On this particular day, there was a fair amount of gossip about the fire and the debates. A house being burned down with the family inside it was quite big news. When Christian had shown up, a few of the more polite people had quieted, while others more inquisitive asked Christian about the details, hoping for a good story. Normally Christian was more than happy to regale his audience with stories from the watch, but this one was a little too close to home, literally and figuratively. He answered in as few words as possible, saying that either he did not know all the details or that he was in a hurry and did not have time to talk. After spending the better part of three hours scrubbing and rinsing and wringing out baskets of clothes, he packed everything back up and made for home so he could hang everything up to dry. He wanted to stop off he wanted to stop off at Mertz, a tavern near the wash house for a bite to eat but the constant reminders from his mother over the years not to be sidetracked with a basket of wet clothes overrode his desire for food, and he beat feet back home. An ox cart or something must have broken down, because the streets were swelling with people not going anywhere. Christian elbowed his way past a pair of locals who seemed interested in adding to the holdup. But he could only get so far before his laundry made it impossible to push through the thicker parts ahead of him. He could just make out the problem. Two carts had collided the respective owners were bickering with each other over the damages, ignoring the fact that they were stopping passageway in both directions. Servants were scurrying about, picking up the wares of their owners. Christian looked around as accidents like this drew people who saw the confusion as a perfect opportunity to lighten the load of a damaged cart. Little did he realize it was his own belongings that he should have been keeping an eye on. He felt the weight on his pack shift slightly, which he mistook for the crowd pushing in against him, as a would-be thief grabbed a handful of garments off the top of the basket. Christian felt some water droplets splash the back of his legs. He turned, just in time to notice the clothes missing from the basket, and the culprit making off down a side alley. Christian hefted the basket as he he shoved his way through the people to the left, until he broke free of the crowd, running down the alleyway after the thief. Stop! Thief! Thief! Christian yelled. No one noticed, or else they thought he was referring to someone by the carts as the owners ran over to look at their wares. After taking another corner, Christian dropped the basket in the alley so he could catch up and was no. And. Ah, sorry. After taking another corner, Christian dropped the basket in the alley so he could catch up to the thief, who was no longer in sight. Christian looked around, recognizing the area, and had a guess where the thief might be heading. Taking another turn past a blacksmith store, Christian shot down a shortcut behind the Playhouse District. He skidded across some trash, trying to keep his balance, but lost his footing when he collided with some discarded crates. Tumbling head over heels, Christian landed on his back and slid sideways into a wall where the alleyway turned. What have we got here? a voice said to his left. Christian righted himself on the ground and looked. There were two men and a woman. One man had a knife to the woman's throat and was pressing her back to the wall. The other man was a was the one who had addressed Christian. The men were dressed in rags, and he thought he could smell them from here, though that may have just been the alley. The woman was dressed in a rather nice blue dress. Just et him the money already. I'll take care of the brat, the whiny man continued, looking at his comrade before brandishing a club and walking toward Christian. The other man began feeling down the woman while he kept the knife to her throat. Christian grabbed the string around his neck, which held a watch whistle. He pressed it to his lips. You'd better not do that, the whining man began, but Christian blew into the whistle for all it was worth. The man ran forward, raising his club high. Christian ducked down, bracing one foot against the wall, and then shot forward between the man's legs when he was close enough. The man started to swing his club, but Christian managed to knock his feet out from under him, and the club went wide as the man came tumbling down. Christian kept moving, getting out from under the man, before stopping and spinning about on the floor. He kicked out, landing his foot into the man's crotch once, twice, three times. "'Bloody lords!' the man screamed out, doubling over, clutching himself. The other man, the one holding the woman, swore— before bringing his knee up hard into the woman's stomach, causing her to reel and then drop to the streets. "'Not smart. Not smart at all, Junior,' the man said as he flipped the knife over in his hand, blade down. He walked over to where Christian lay prone in the alleyway. "'The alleyway is no place for a rehearsal.' Christian and the knife-man turned. There, standing in the doorway of the theater— was a well-dressed man in black leather pants and a shirt that made him look like he belonged on the deck of a pirate ship. He had long black hair pulled back in a ponytail and was adjusting his tie as he stood there, a slight jesting smile on his face. Get out of here. This doesn't concern you, the thug snorted, waving the man off with his knife. Your stage directions are all over the place, the would-be pirate replied, grabbing the rapier at his hip. Unsheathing it with his right hand, flipping it into the air, then catching it with his left. I'm going to gut you like a fish and snap that little twig of yours in half, the thug threatened, turning his back to Christian and charging towards the swordsman. I think not, the swordsman replied, smiling. As the thug closed, the man sidestepped at the last minute, batting the thug's weapon hand down before swatting the man across the backside. The thug smacked his head into the wall, cursing as he shook, regaining his balance. The swordsman danced his way next to the woman in the dress. "'You have horrible tastes in partners, Jenny,' the man jested, giving her a cursory check as he positioned himself between her and the ruffian. "'I didn't know they'd be back here, Jenna,' she apologized, looking flummoxed. "'No worries, child. I always jump at the chance to work on my improv.' Jenner turned his attention back to the thug, who seemed to have regained his senses, swearing. Assessing the situation, Jenner switched the rapier to his other hand. I shall give you a fighting chance, sir, he smiled, turning his sword arm as he put his left hand on his hip, bending his knees. The thug came forward, swinging as hard as he could. Jenner stepped to and fro, moving out of the way, the knife slicing through the thin air with each swipe. By this time, the whiny man on the ground had regained his composure, crawling to his knees and reaching for the club. No audience participation, if you please, Jenner said, spotting the man getting up. He maneuvered himself over, keeping the man with the knife at bay with his rapier, so that his back was to the man on the ground. He took a swipe at his feet. Jenner did a little hop, simultaneously ducking a swing from the man with the knife. Jenner shook his head, sighing. Ugh, you men give me nothing to work with. I've directed children with more panache. He then ducked down, then brought the tip of his rapier across the knife-man's shins, eliciting a howl of pain from the man. Spinning in a circle as he came up, Jenner planted his right foot under the clubman's chin as he rose, causing the man to rise up to his knees before falling over backwards, landing unconscious in the alleyway. Please tell me these aren't all your best moves, or I weep for the future, Jenner joked, provoking the knife man. The man bit, charging forward. Turning as if to run, Jenner ran straight at the alley wall. As the knife man was bearing down on him, he planted one foot upon the wall. His other foot went up, connecting as well, before he pushed off, springing into a somersault, taking him up and over the man behind him. Jenner whipped the tip of his rapier across the man's forehead as he flipped over his head. Jenner landed behind the man, facing him, as the man collided into the wall full force. "'You foppish bastard!' the man swore, offering up a stream of profanities, clutching his hands to his head as blood dripped down into his eyes. "Eh, "'If your knife work was as colorful as your language, this could have been a much better day,' Jenner sighed. But as it is, I'm growing rather bored with your amateur performances. Jenner stepped up to the man, bringing his foot up hard into the man's crotch. Jenner then slid back, then stepped into another kick, bringing his foot up again as the man fell to his knees, catching the man in the face with a loud cracking noise. His cursing was cut off as he collapsed into the alleyway alongside his partner in crime. Christian blinked, realizing that in a small way he had been a part of it all. He stood up, having forgotten why he had come here in the first place and what he had been chasing after. Um, are you okay? Christian asked the man. Ah, it's always the greatest of compliments to be recognized by your audience, he smiled, walking over to Christian and giving his head a good ruffling. Yes, my small sir, I am unfortunately unscathed and unimpressed. Do I have you to thank for this menial of menial sources of entertainment? Uh, Christian could not tell if the swordsman was angry or amused. It is not to the boys' fault, Jenner. I came back here to take a breather, and I didn't notice those two guys come down the way. If the kid didn't come when we did, you probably wouldn't have even heard him. Well, lad, it seems I owe you the life of this lady here. Please, come to my show. It's the least I can offer. Two tickets appeared in his hand, which he proffered to Christian, smiling. Who are you? Christian asked, looking up at the man impressed, feeling the tickets being pressed into his palm. I'm complicated, he replied, but you may call me Jenner. He flipped the rapier back into the air, grabbing his sheath and catching the blade in it after it spun in the air a few times, letting it swing back against his hip. At this point, as Jenner and Jenny said their goodbyes, the watch, summoned by the whistle, showed up in the alleyway. Christian explained what had happened, though Jenner downplayed his role much more than what actually happened, giving most of the credit to Christian. Christian blushed, starting to interrupt, but Jenner would not hear of it. Whispering to Christian on the fly that going down to the watch to file a full report was not his idea of a fun afternoon, if he would be so kind as to fill in the part of the story for him, he improvised a story to Christian that he himself would not have attempted, but after seeing the familiarity with which the watchman regarded Christian, he figured it was only it would go off with flying colors. Christian waved goodbye as the watch escorted the two ruffians out of the alley. Jenny gave a little wave, and Jenner made a flourishing gesture with his hand before he closed the door to the back of the theater. As he was walking back with the watch, he looked down at the tickets in his hand for the first time. Two balcony seats for the Royal Airland Theater and Playhouse. Christian choked. He had never been to a big production, and the Rat was one of the most respected theaters in the region. His dad said the prices those places charged for admission were crazy, and his mother never pressed the issue, though he knew she would love to go. Mother, shoot. Laundry. Christian mumbled under his breath, sighing as he remembered what had brought him back down there in the first place. He backtracked to where he had dropped the basket, and, mercy have it, it was still there. The clothing thief was long gone, but he hoped the tickets and his tale of bravery would gloss over any minor loss. Feeling good about the whole thing, Christian caught up with the watch and made his way with them to the guardhouse. So... Let me get this straight. I sent Johnny and Randall on a simple errand to get some coin from a woman that owed me money, and not only did you not get the money, but you got in a tussle with some kid and some fop, and they're both in the cage? The man who was speaking was heavyset. His large hands were crossed, and the light in the room reflected off the many jewels that adorned each thick digit. He was thrumming them on the maple desk as he eyed the man across from him. "'That is what happened, right? Please, enlighten me if I seem to have missed anything.' "'No, um, that's about the gist of it,' the other man said, rubbing his hands together for warmth. "'Come here, Conrad. Come over here. Do you see this?' The large man asked, putting his hand out, palm up, to his side. Conrad walked around the desk and stood next to the man. He looked down. What do you see, Conrad? Um, I don't see anything, sir. That's your problem. You lack vision. Men who lack vision have no place in my employment. The hand shot up, grabbing the man by the neck. It then proceeded to smash Conrad's face down onto the top of the desk. After the first hit, Conrad moaned, momentarily stunned. He managed to scream through three more impacts before there was a loud crack. The corpse that was Conrad slumped down, which allowed for only three more impacts before the weight of the body made it impractical to bludgeon the man's skull any further. When the hand released its hold on the skull, the body slumped to the floor, blood dripping off the desk and forming a small pool around the crumpled figure. Then the man held up his hand, regarding it. Farron, fetch me a handkerchief, and Conrad's second in command. After the servant returned, the man behind the desk rose, wiping his hands off, then tossing the rag down over the head of the corpse. He looked to regard the new man in the room. What is your name? Malcolm, sir. Do you have vision, Malcolm? I beg your pardon? This man here on the floor, Conrad, your old boss, he lacked vision. Well, then, I definitely have vision, sir. The large man smiled, flexing his arms, and put one around Malcolm, curling one bejeweled fist around his shoulder. I do not like looking like a fool, Malcolm. When someone who works for me makes himself look like a fool, he makes me look like a fool. Do I look like a fool, Malcolm? Definitely not, sir. Are you a fool, Malcolm? Definitely not, sir. He removed his hand, turning back to look at Malcolm. Foreign Grant does not like to look like a fool. Now tell me, Malcolm, what do you know of theater? Hello, and thank you for listening to the World of Grey podcast. For any questions about the podcast, or the books in general, email me at podcast at My two books, Fallen Throne and Dark Halo, are available for download on the Amazon Kindle Store for the low price of $3 apiece. I don't output a ton of updates, but when I do release one, you can find it on Facebook at josephporthos, or on my website located at josephporthos.com. I hope you enjoyed today's chapter, and I look forward to you tuning in again next time. This is Joseph Porthos, signing off.